I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Design to Heal. Dr. Ben, you've got you've got somebody from the UK today. We're going across the pond, and uh, I love this. So why don't you introduce our guest, and uh, I know you're fired up about this one. Well, so. hey, when we like to, exp- you know, we always want to expand our horizons. <laughs> we want to uh, expand our minds. We want to be willing to learn, but... Um, we, we like people with cooler accents than us. That that's is really, true. Really Anytime you can bring somebody with an accent, everybody loves them. But no, Dr. Robert Verkirk is who we have on today. And people are listening. You can already start to Google that. I've, uh, I came into knowing about his work years ago, probably almost a, a decade ago. Well, actually, earlier than that, I just didn't know he was kind of the, the brains behind that. And there was a season in my life I was working in, in, in Georgia with Life University and some research there. And so we had connected through that. And then recently... Mm-hmm. Um, through everything, I've just really seen him, uh, his name again, right? And and he always gives such thoughtful, uh, researched, um, cited work that anytime you're in my space where you're, you know, going against the grain, everybody always wants to know, hey, where did that come from, or who said that, or who did that research? And so you're drawn to people like Dr. Robert, who who appreciate that, right? I mean, he's a researcher by profession. His career, he'll share a little bit about his his kind of career, but then also. He is. He's over in the in you know in the UK, mm-hmm. and so as we're walking through this whole COVID thing, um, you know he has a perspective that we don't have. We were talking a little bit on air before, and and you know where we are and where he is, and some of the commonalities and some of the concerns. And this is going to be uh, an awesome show. I mean, I'm like giddy, right? Because it's awesome to find somebody that has his credentials, but then also just his thoughtfulness. I mean, you're going to hear a lot today about probably COVID stuff, but his work spans way more than that. I mean, when we met, we were talking about just healthcare systems and farming and agriculture. And I mean, he, I would say, you know, there's holistic, right? And then there's like really holistic, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. a guy like Dr. Robert with his, the way he's able to think and, and understand and then articulate it to people is why we're so excited. So that was a long kind of introdu- introduction, my friend, but do you mind, Dr. Robert, first of all, welcome to the show, Designed to Heal, but also will you um, will you just tell us a little bit about you so my listeners can learn about you? Absolutely. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Um, apologies for the accent if it's not very clear, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to <laughs> communicate in your, in your tongue. Um, look, my background, I, I've, for 40 years, I've been a sustainability uh, scientist. So sustainability is the one thread that's linked all of my work. I've worked um, extensively in academia. I was um, with, you probably heard the name, Imperial College London. So um, I, I did my uh, master's, PhD, and seven years postdoc there. And my field was sustainable agriculture. So when Ben talks about my background in sustainability and why we've talked about agriculture, really a lot of the journey that I have had over the last 20 years has been stitching together agriculture and healthcare and looking at the systems involved, how we can learn from history, learn from science, learn from big picture thinking. And so... um, In my frustration um, back in 2002, seeing that the way in which um, the 
academic world was going, who was starting to fund it, and how biased it was becoming. And if you really did great work, it was very difficult to see work that um, involved change that would actually be applied um, in the real world. And I felt increasingly many of the biggest problems that we face on our planet linked to population, food security, health, are actually things that we already know about. And, and very often those central solutions are about how we should actually be more connected rather than less connected to nature. And so I set up the, um, I founded the Alliance for Natural Health. We, we have um, a US base, NHUSA, I'm the science director of that, as well as an international base in the UK. We do a lot of work internationally. We tend to, because we're thinking about big picture things, we're not particularly interested in just what happens in one country, but we're looking at the relation, relationship between um, different issues and data patterns and all the rest of it. Um, we have a, a, a philosophy that we call good science and good law. So we try and really rely on authoritative um, primary data as far as possible. Um, and you know, this COVID phenomenon has kind of railroaded all of us. You know, we, we were in the middle of, uh, Ben, you and I were talking several years back, this project that we're, we're working on then is still very much alive. It's how you create new community-based healthcare systems. And in fact, coming out of COVID, we're going to need that better than more, more than at any other time in our history, certainly in our lifetimes. But we've been railroaded by this. There's a lot of people in deep fear, in deep hysteria. They are competing uh, views everywhere. Um, societies are being polarized. And we've got to try and get on the same page if we're going to come out of this in one piece. So, Robert, you, you have you know, an expertise in, in, you know, in, in reviewing science. You used a term, you know, primary data. And I think this is where I, I want to just sit for a second because you know, a lot of it, and, I, and again, I'm, so much for me will just be from a U.S. perspective, you know, but you know, through mainstream media, and I really do want to hear kind of what feet on the ground over in, in, in the U.K. is like. But what, what I'm seeing is you know, it just becomes these bumper sticker statements. And then when you, when you read any of the actual, data, um, it, it really tells a different story. And I think, like you said, COVID has put so much of this under a microscope. I mean, everything from, you know, vaccine creation to vaccine testing to vaccine, you know, application or injection. And here in the U.S. this morning, um, we just saw that they're asked to pause the J&J &J vaccine because of the side effects. And I think there's a lot of people, yes, they were afraid of COVID and, and, and this hysteria that was kind of um, flamed about that. But then now people are going, but now I'm looking at this vaccine and I'm going, well, this is crazy. Or I'm looking at my, my, my freedoms or, or rights being you know, taken away. A lot of the talk of the vaccine passports. And, and you know, I think, um, so do you mind giving us kind of your your perspective on this? I know that you don't take this conversation lightly and you don't say things you can't defend, but what's kind of your, your take, been in this you know, a little bit over a year now, um, and, and kind of what is the status of things over in, in your part of the world? And, uh, and just can you kind of speak some sense into us, speak some, you know, some, I want to say logic, but, you know, just, yeah, what do you, where are you at with everything? Absolutely. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> the starting point is, you know, how dangerous is this thing? So, you know, if we look back in history and we look at something like Spanish flu, you'll be aware that there are many different estimates, somewhere between 
17 million up to 100 million people died. But you've got to see that in the context of how many people were alive at the time between 1918 and 1920. And it turns out, you know, Spanish flu killed between one and five percent, depending on which estimate you use. So putting COVID in perspective as a as a pandemic, the figure is sitting if you assume that all the reported deaths through all the national data that have been assembled in one place um, were actually caused by COVID, which we know is not the case, we're sitting at 0.04%. So that's kind of between 25 times and 125 times less. And it's probably a whole lot less than that, given that most of the COVID data is not causally related. In and that's words, a worldwide number. Yeah, and that's a worldwide number, just for yeah, listeners. A, that's a, world, a global figure. Which is, the reason that that's important is because this has been called a global pandemic, which has driven a lot of the regulations and, and changes we've made, you know, both, you know, government-wise and others. So it's important. Somebody say, well, what about the U.S.? Or what about this area? They were hit hard. I say, listen, a lot of the, the language that's used in the agenda is, is this global, worldwide you know, pandemic. And so the, the words we yeah. use matter, because if you want to use that as your justification for making all these changes, then you better be able to provide some data that shows the, the magnitude being on, on par with something. And so if we want to use a great example with the 1918 flu, which you hear, you know, thrown around a lot to incite some fear in us, then let's compare apples to apples. And what you just said there says, well, that tells quite a different story. And that's actually giving them the benefit of the doubt that every, you know, death was actually attributed to that. Yeah. And if you look, say, at sub-Saharan Africa, there have only been about 8,000 reported cases. So it's no great surprise that three or four weeks ago, the president of Zambia said when a huge consignment of Gavi-sponsored vaccines turned up in Zambia, and he happens to be a doctor, said, you know, we don't really want to play this game, mm. um, especially not written or over all the consignment was not for use in the USA or EU. Mm. And, and, you know, these African doctors know very well that's typically medicine dumping. So there may be bad batches or whatever, but there may be uh, other reasons as well. So why on earth is Gavi so intent at, glo at, at mass vaccinating so many people, including population groups and countries that have no COVID problems? Even if you move to, to Europe, you know, we, you probably think of Europe having had a horrendous time. You, you saw the data in, in Italy and Spain and the UK and assumed that that has happened across the board. But again, if you want to look at European data, don't be fooled by looking at cases. We all know, you know, one of the biggest problems we've, we've had in COVID is this kind of very subtle um, change in the definition of what a case is. You know, historically, a case has always been a case of disease. Now it's a case that's detectable using a molecular biology tool, such as PCR or lateral flow. Um, it's never been done before, and it actually creates this situation in which we could have a never-ending story. We could have an impossibility of exiting the... Um, the whole so-called pandemic. And the reason for that, um, and I, I really don't want to get too scientific here, but it is, is a statistical theorem that was developed by, by Bayes a couple of hundred years ago. And it, and it basically means that if you have an error 
which you always do in a diagnostic test. And you've got to remember that when you see the, the, uh, the error rate in a PCR test or a lateral flow test, that is under perfect conditions. So you get additional error that comes in in terms of how the swab sample has taken um, other factors along the way. So there's always an error. And basically, as your prevalence goes down, your false positive rate goes up. So you can get a situation where it always looks like you have cases knocking around um, and, and you can't actually eliminate the problem. So it's, that, that is a major problem. So you, you have to start looking at much harder markers. And one of the things we're not so bad at doing is determining when a human is actually alive or dead. And that brings you to mortality data. And so if you look at mortality data, what you're re really interested in what are the longer-term trends? And so you can go onto the CDC website and put in, you know, put CDC and excess mortality into Google, and you'll probably get to the CDC site that has the, the, um, the data there. And you'll see very clear evidence that you had in the U.S., you had what looks like three spikes, you, you know, of excess mortality. So people who say that there was, hasn't been any extra death at all, or it's been the same as flu. It's not quite the same. Um, there has been excess mortality, but you've got to go back in history to see, you know, when did we achieve those kind of levels? And, and we have been there before at these kind of levels. Um, so, and of course, the, the, the real issues, we, the, if you look at the second spike in the U.S., that is just basically the first way of hitting the southern states. I think you, you'll be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And then we have this much more elongated spike that you and the U.S. are just coming out of. We in Europe are just coming out of in the countries that have had a problem. And, you know, when we look back at the European data, it's only about nine out of 26 European um, Euromomo states that have actually had a problem. Nine out of 26. The rest have had, they've been flatlining. They've been well within their normal excess mortality. So the, the US and the UK are two examples of places that have definitely had quite high excess mortality. But when you look at the second spike, what you see is this, this longer sort of, if you like, a mountain with gradual slopes on both sides. Um, it has an interesting additional peak in January, which some are relating to the potential a, a, a dry tinder effect that people who are most susceptible either to disease or, or vaccine who may have been impacted. We definitely saw a dry tinder effect in the earlier part of, um, of, of 2020 when the virus hit. But why is it so broad? Why is the mortality so broad? And it's almost impossible to say that that a large proportion of that is actually linked to what happens when you put a whole you know large national and many national populations into a complete state of flux where healthcare is not delivered in the normal way where people are so fearful they can't get early cancer detection early heart disease d detection and in fact when you start looking at the mortality patterns in individual age groups that we know are not susceptible to COVID, that really starts coming coming home. So the Euromomo data, the Z-score analysis, um, looking at, at populations even, um, you know, up to 44 years of age that haven't had a COVID problem, 
they endured excess mortality across Euromomo countries um, starting when lockdown started, you know, earlier last year. So we, we definitely have a problem, but it is being caused. It's the collateral damage now that is causing most of the problems, not the virus itself. So you bring up a couple of, of points that I want to, you know, kind of flush out for our listeners. One of them is, you know, we did something in this, um, and again, I don't even know what the right words are some days, but just what everybody, you know, we'll just call it you know, this COVID. How do you frame it, Doc? How do you just, you know, the COVID uh, events, it's hard for me to even say yeah, you know, we, pandemic, but. Yeah, we, 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 we don't want to call it a pandemic, but um, look, it is, um, it, it is a response. I mean, I think there is no problem because we have to use a language sometimes that communicates to people who sit in the movable middle who yeah. still think there is a real problem with a virus. Yeah. Um, in actual fact, there was a real problem with the response to the virus. So that is a so-called pandemic response, if you like, put it yeah. in single inverted commas. Well, and that's what I wanted to, to ask, which is this idea or this, we we did something that we've really never done before in many, many countries with these lockdowns and, you know, schools shutting down and um, travel. I mean, they're just, you know, and, and staying in and, and, and in many places masking people and in and out and, and kids. And and so the collateral damage of that, you know, like you were talking about just from, you know, not seeking health care or depression or abuse or overdoses and all these things that we saw for suicides. But also, I, I guess, I want to ask, even though a lot of those uh, actual actions we took, I think, have have drawn this out, have made much of that elongated uh, curve that you were talking about, where, you know, we by driving people in, we saw this happen in New York, we're seeing this happen, I believe, in Michigan now, I feel like I can say we're now contrasting that with Florida, where I happen to live, where we've been more more open, certainly more out and about, um, and, and, and living and schools have been open, and we've seen, we're, we're not experiencing that. I mean, we experienced, you know, what most people experienced with, you know, back early in the, in the, you know, 2020 and things like that. But other than that, after we got through that main thing, everything has really been relatively fine. And when I say that, I don't mean to downplay, you know, individual injuries that have happened and the realities of certain things. I'm not talking about that, but I think this, if you could speak to a second doc, just about our approach and, and, and actually causing this to become more of a problem than it, than it maybe was. And if I'm articulating that right, can you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, the initial spike that happened in the countries that were affected, and let's remember that that was a minority of the total number of countries on the planet, is actually a very tight, narrow spike. Um, the majority of people who died within that spike actually died within a very limited period of time. Um, you know, the spikes are basically about nine weeks in, in duration when they exceed excess mortality, but the majority of death within them is a much narrower period, about four or five weeks. And that's what so we expect in a typical when, kind of thing like this, right? That's what we expect to see correct. historic, whether it's the flu or whether it's COVID. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, so that happened, and 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 there was a problem, and it was a, a a you know I think there's an entirely separate question about where did this virus come from, right. and the jury is definitely out scientifically. Um, I think it is very very interesting that either by chance or um, because of gain of function research, it actually carries genetic sequences that happen to be identical in the spike protein, which is where. The, the vaccines have been built around the antigen based on the spike protein. 
and also those gene sequences are paralleled in the human genome, which means that um, if you look at the work of, say, you know, who we call the father of autoimmune disease, Dr. Yehuda Schoenfeld from, from Israel, who's published more than um, 1,700 papers in total on autoimmune disease and has been very outspoken, saying that we think there may be a problem with these vaccines. And, and, and he said this way before we started to look at the problems of thrombocytopenia, the blood clot problem that we're seeing now. Um, but actually, the very mechanism that he alluded to was molecular mimicry because of the similar reaction. So as and when the body starts to switch around and determine, try and work out, you know, is this a foreign body or not? it can potentially get confused and turn on your body and start attacking you. And, and so when you have these very elevated antibody responses from the vaccine, um, these antibodies can attach to tiny little cells, little thrombocytes, platelets that start getting sticky and creating thromboembolic events, which is what we're seeing. So, um, and I think that's the, the kind of thin edge edge of the wedge. But um, we knew very, very early on, you know, when, when the genome of SARS-CoV-2 was first sequenced in the beginning of January, they were straight on it starting to develop synthetic biology vaccines. So, so the idea was, you'll remember this back in 2020, was we're going to do this, we're going to get the vaccines out. We tried before with SARS and MERS. We had other problems then, we had problems with, with ADE, antibody-dependent enhancement, pathogenic priming, call it what you like. Basically, you get the vaccine, and then when you're exposed to the wild virus, you can get really, really ill. And, and so, in fact, with the phase one trials, they were trying to make sure that those ADE events weren't that prominent. But it does not mean that you have any data on safety. So there was always a strategy to lock people down until there's a vaccine. And they worked as hard as they could. They threw huge amounts of funding. I mean, interesting that, um, you know, one of our complaints about what's been going on is when you look at the complexity of a host pathogen interaction like this, why on earth do you have only one egg in your basket in the form of vaccines? What happens if you have a problem with immune escape. So Geert van den Bosch, the Belgian vaccinologist, has right. been very outspoken on that. We, we questioned some of his science initially. Um, I immediately you know, connected with him on LinkedIn, had a two-and-a-half-hour discussion with him and started to understand that some of the misunderstanding around it was, was the language. You know, mm-hmm. English is not his, his first language, let alone American. Um, and, um, but, of course... We've now been tracking the science around the very problem that he talks about, immune escape. And one of the particular um, mutations that we're seeing, E484, that's that's sometimes referred to as the EEC mutation, is actually expanding. It it could be kind of autocorrected out of the population, but it isn't. In fact, the very fact that we're starting to see um, um, this particular mutant increase in countries like India that contains, let's remember, 18% of the world's population, and it's pretty warm, so it's not kind of 
cold through most of the parts other than the, the highland uh, areas. But um, it is increasing. So the latest uh, data that came out of the Indian government from the 10 uh, labs that make up their consortium that's working on um, SARS-CoV-2 genomics has found now that up to 20% of all the cases they're seeing from swab samples are actually including this, the, 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 these particular variants, the, the, and including the double variant. So we now have a problem of mutations partially because we're letting this thing hang around so long that it's having more and more opportunities to mutate. So the, as we know, RNA viruses don't mutate nearly as often as DNA viruses like, like flu viruses. But hey, if you give them plenty of opportunity and occasions to mutate that lower error rate that they have will manifest. So you will start to get mutations. And if you get resilient mutations and you get immunoscape mutations, you have a problem. And if, if your only egg in your basket is the vaccine and there is the potential for those mutations to escape the um, immune response that develops through that vaccine, I mean, you're either locked permanently into a vaccine treadmill where you have lockdowns and then you have a new vaccine being developed that tries to outsmart the virus. You know, uh, I mean, you, you're stuck in that whole process. Wow. I mean, it, it, in addition to that, if you're using PCR and yeah. lateral flow to measure what's happening, I mean, you are stuck, true, proper stuck. Well, I want to, and I want to, I want to kind of ask a couple of follow-ups. So, so our, maybe our listeners are, are tracking with us too. So, you know, one of, and I just saw this report. Uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, out of Israel, where it's, and I think Israel right now is probably the most uh, COVID vaccinated nation right now, at least in their adult population. I believe I've seen up to fifty percent of, of that. And then, if, and, and so, and and what they said was they're seeing, and again, the words get a little bit, you know, confusing. Basically, these breakthrough infections with different variants that are affecting the vaccinated worse and then the unvaccinated. And so I think we're, we're seeing, you know, and there's, again, the, the, like you said, the semantics get a little confusing after you were talking to, to Dr. Gert there about, you know, what are we talking about? And, and when, you ma when you mass vaccinate uh, an entire population or attempt to do that with, you know, millions to billions of people at one time in the midst of a, you know, current, you know, infection happening, you, you, you're driving you're you're trying you're almost playing God a little bit. You're forcing the hand, and I think that we have we have to appreciate the unknowns of that um, very sensitively. And then the other point that I want, because this is one of those things, Doc, that I think a lot of people don't think about until you bring it to attention, which is we we haven't spent. I mean, to, to the comparison of numbers, we spent tr literally probably at this point trillions of dollars on vaccine only. Uh, things yet, you know, compared to that minuscule amounts on treatment or therapies for people that have an infection, right? And so when you only say this is all about a vaccine, because, you know, here in America, whether, you know, they're pushing for vaccine passports like they are in the UK, and you're hearing Canada, you're hearing this language. And I was thinking about this the other day, we wouldn't even be having to have a vaccine passport conversation if our only option wasn't vaccines, right? If And so we wouldn't have to be tracking people. If we were in a position now where we said, hey, we know how to pretty uh, 
uh, you know, pretty well manage a, a COVID uh, infection for those people that it's a high risk for. And here's some things that we use to do that. And it's safe and it's effective and things like that. I mean, we can do it for the point, you know, point oh, whatever percent of the population that's a super dangerous thing for, or it seems to impact them, like a lot of things impact them, not just COVID. Um, we have some approach to that, but we ignored that entirely. It's hard to not be skeptical or, or cynical about that and say there was what appears to be an agenda. And then, you know, and I'm even hearing Dr. Fauci say this yesterday, that we need to be prepared for uh, um, um, likely what they're calling booster shots, right? COVID booster shots. So to your point, I just want our listeners to see this. There is almost a, 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 a I don't know how else to call it, but this man-made perceptual cycle, which by the way, which would be a very um, beneficial cycle for those that are in this business, right? We test you with tests that even the creator of the test have said we shouldn't be using for diagnosis. Um, PCR tests, high inaccuracy rate and things like that. So we're going to be testing people all the time, asymptomatic and otherwise in all populations. Uh, we'll message you through that, creating fear and hysteria. And the only solution available to you, not only available to you, likely mandated to you will be something that we're going to call a vaccine that has, you know, limited, if any evidence of long-term effects, uh, has many known concerns. Like to your point, I just want people to hear this because if, if we would have signed, I don't think people would sign up for that model, right? But they weren't told that was the plan. I think that was the plan in part. And it's, we can go down a lot of rabbit holes, but rabbit holes, but do you, so, is that, was that a fair let, assessment let, let on what me, I said? Let, yeah. Yeah, look, that, that, that is absolutely. Let, let's talk to the Israeli paper because uh, okay. I've, I've, I'm writing a, a write-up on a, a study that in, in detail. So um, in essence, what, it, what it's saying in Israel, and you're absolutely right, it's the most vaccinated population, is that the population that were fully vaccinated had an eight times greater likelihood of being infected by the South African variant. And, and of course, the South African full stop. I mean, that's a big variant. deal. Like, wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that it, should blow. Eight yeah. Times more. Yeah. And, and then the, the, the other main finding is, is that the um, partially vaccinated people had one dose, not two doses, were three times more likely to be infected with the UK variant. So w what this shows is, is this is they, they refer to it as, as um, you know, vaccine breakthrough. But it is also immune escape, and there's no doubt that the mechanism of it is almost certainly the fact that, that those mutations include the particular um, lineage that, that has the E484K or Q variant within it. So you've got immune escape that's part of it, and because these, um, not to get you know too tied up in the genetics of it, yeah. There was a theory because there are some substitutions. You can have either substitutions or deletions involved in a in a mutation. There were some substitutions in it. It may be kind of auto-corrected out. So one of the signals you would look for there is if these variants are found, you know, countries like the UK tend to find things pretty quickly because you've got um, a much higher level of genomic sequencing in the UK than any, anywhere else. So that's one of the reasons mm. the UK variant was found early. Um, turns out the South Africans are pretty good at, uh, at genetic testing as well. So they also found another variant. The chances are that, that there are a whole range of other variants. You know, if you look for it, you will find it. Um, but then what becomes very interesting is you start to look at vaccinated to unvaccinated populations. And I, I have to say at this point, I love those memes where people who've made an informed choice 
to exert their right of refusal because they're completely healthy. They have trust in their innate and adaptive immune system. They're taking plenty of vitamin D and C and they're eating a healthy diet and they're getting outside and exercising and they're not stressed by what's going on in the world that these people say, you know, um, I, I don't want a vaccine. Um, but, you know, we, we, have, we have a major problem when people don't understand that and they start to force people into, into vaccination. So, so it's a, so when you're, so, okay, here we, here we sit and I, and then, you know, at the risk of oversimplification, you know, but the cat's out of the bag, right? I mean, we're not talking about theories anymore, right? We're talking about, um, in the reality of what we're all living in, you know, right? And so as far as the UK goes, and I know you're not, um, don't claim to be prophetic, but do you see, uh, Doc, do you see this going the way? Actually, here's what I want to do. We talked on the a little bit before on the call. We talked about this. The, the, did you call it the majority in the middle? Is that what you you called it? The middle? Yeah, the mo- the movable the movable, movable middle. middle. And so I, I want to I do I think I want to speak to that group of people because so just this morning I wake up and I see you know Johnson and Johnson vaccine paused in the U.S. and I feel like when I saw that I felt like there's going to be some people that are going to wake up today and are going to go what's going on because forever you told me it's safe forever you told me it's effective you told me there's nothing to worry about you told me it's rare you told me it's my only way out you told me it's how I'm going to hug my grandkids again you told me it's going to stop me from dying and all those things could be debatable topics so that's not the point but i feel like there's this group of people the the like you just described the movable middle that if if we can i don't want to say if we can get enough of them back lack of a better way of saying it, if you can get enough of those people to say I'm not signing up for this. There is the opportunity to preserve some of our freedoms and our medical freedoms, and, and there is light at the end of the tunnel. Now, I think the opposite of that is true as well. I think if we don't um, ask some good questions and demand some good research and refuse to participate in things that are everything you just described, I think the movable middle could lead us to the place where we're, you know, um, you know, having vaccine passports and randomly testing healthy people and quarantining people. And I just saw a video today. I don't know if it's true, but it was out of the UK where they were breaking into a man's house through the glass and taking him for breaking what they called the COVID COVID quarantine rules. And so, will you? What is our and we won't put all the pressure on you there, Doc. Well, but that, what is our that, what is our way out of this? Of, yeah, that's a, that that's the result of a middle that doesn't move. That's a, the result of a middle that decides to just buy into what's being um, delivered to them. What they they've been educated, they've been put into a, a state of fear, um, and and they are just buying the line that that the government is doing is acting in the best interests of, of populations. Um, I think all of the evidence points in a very, very different direction. You know, the, the the decision, you've got to remember there's 135 vaccines in the pipeline. Most of the decisions that were made... COVID vaccines or total out, vaccines you're talking? Co- COVID, COVID. Just vaccines, COVID. Yeah. COVID vaccines. COVID, yeah. I mean, there's hundreds, so there's hundreds the more. WHO. Just so people do know this, there's hundreds and hundreds of other vaccines in the pipeline. And the concern for you as a consumer is... If this goes de- continues to go down and we move in the direction of mandated adult vaccines and whatever is added to some sort of schedule that is deemed as what we need, you have the very real possibility of hundreds of mandated vaccines for every human on the planet. And if that bothers you, then it's really important what we do now. Sorry to interrupt. 
<laughs> Correct. Look, I mean, I, I, in October 2018, I, I, I was the only person representing a, a non-governmental organization, and, and I joined a meeting of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations, um, if IFPMA is their, their acronym, and um, they were holding a meeting on basically what the next 50 years, they were celebrating 50 years of pharma, and they wanted to pat themselves on the back and see where are they going to go for the next 50 years. Number one on the agenda was vaccines. Um, the, 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 the agenda, the meeting was called Going Upstream, Assessing the Promises of Preventive Medicine and Healthcare Reform. The really bothersome part of it is that they realized that, that um, they're basically on a sort of cliff edge patent situation with a lot of the blockbuster drugs. Um, they haven't got a lot coming through the pipeline. And actually, the primary way forward for the pharmaceutical industry is to move to a vaccine model. So a very big part of what's going on at the moment, and and again, there's been a lot of sleight of hand in terms of the, the transition and the kind of technologies being used. I mean, you will recall how long we publicly debated the issue of GMOs when it came to food. Um, and I've been very involved in those debates internationally, including in the U.S. When it comes to using synthetic biology, synthetic nucleic acids um, being either delivered in such a way that, that they provide instructions to our muscle cells to produce a spike protein from a new virus, which is what the um, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines do, or they're delivered inside a, a GMO-modified um, chimpanzee common cold virus in the form of the AstraZeneca virus, the public weren't in on that discussion that, guys, this is an entirely new way. We were trying to do this with Ebola. We were trying to do it with MERS. It didn't really work very well. Now, we'll roll it out on a global population with almost no testing. Um, we'll, we'll use herd immunity equations that have such erroneous assumptions built into them, such as even mixing of populations and that all individuals will develop sterilizing immunity so that Bill Gates can go out there and say, you know, you're not going to be let loose until, you know, nearly everyone on the planet's been vaccinated. Now, those base assumptions scientifically are all false. I mean, you only have to look at a closely related virus like common cold, 20% of which are caused by um, a couple of different coronaviruses to realize that actually we can get herd immunity at much, much lower levels. Um, you know, people who are really sick from these viruses tend not to mix a lot. They're sick. They lie in bed. They, they you know, they do what our grandmothers used to, used to tell us to do, which is also not spend a lot of time around um, them because, you know, grannies are, are going to be more vulnerable. Um, so we, we know over, you know, many thousands of years of evolution how to handle these viruses. We lie low for a little bit. Um, we tend not to share it around because we're sick and we have very well built in antenna that, that know how to respond around other people who look sick. We tend to stay away from them. And this idea of saying that there is something special about a meter or three feet, you know, to yeah, have a yeah. social distancing policy or to use a mask that, you know, we know these things are airborne. 
you know, I, I was amazed how long it took them to start looking at things like ventilation in confined spaces, which are going to be way more important than masks. Yeah. But you know, the science wasn't being used as the justification to do this. Yeah, well, just one of the things about that you you mentioned that I that I want a person to understand that the difference of a of a vaccine, which is. When you have something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, HPV is one that I think is a great example, it reminds me of, is because when you take something that is, uh, the body uh, does an awesome job of clearing out and handling naturally, 99 plus percent of people that, ha- that have them and they clear them. But now when you introduce something, i.e. a vaccine, versus um, another medication that's treating a, a specific, you know, diagnosed thing that's, you know, happening with somebody, you, the vaccine now gets the credit for the 99 Right, which is I right. think creates such a, 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 a well pow, pow, powerful narrative for the you know for the pharma world, if you will. But it really perverts our understanding of how it, how it works. There's a, a quote from a, a, one of the former CEOs of Merck at one time. He said, "I always envied Wrigley's bubble gum because they had found a way mm-hmm. to sell to everybody." Right, and so when you have a, a vaccine, that the argument is everybody from birth to death needs this thing and likely multiple them, you know, multiples of them, you're, again, I just, it's very different than treatment. Giving something to healthy people for something they don't have and then taking the credit for them of not getting it is not, is, is a very scary assumptive, assumptive model to, to give to people, right? Especially with all the known risks that we have with that. And, and considering that we know very clearly exactly what population groups and ages are most vulnerable to this. So, you know, this is a very, very different kettle of fish compared with what we were dealing with, what, what society was dealing with, with Spanish flu back in 1918 to 1920, because that, that really impacted younger people, people in the military much, much more. Um, they were, the, the military personnel were actually used um, for testing vaccines even back in those days. And now when you look at the, the mortality rate, actually it's not possible to discern how many of the deaths were actually um, vaccine side effects at that time. But the bottom line is that people who were younger developed a very severe cytokine storm, and it was the cytokine storm that killed them. This guy is very different. This is a, a particular virus that exploits a weak immune system. It exploits... A, a dysregulated metabolic and immune system. So people with metabolic diseases and dysfunctional immune systems, including people who are old, who just have a naturally degrading immune system, we call that immunosenescence, are going to be most vulnerable. So we know very clearly, that's why pretty much in the, in the Western world, yeah. um, close on 50% of all deaths have occurred in Cahans. Yet we are choosing yeah. to, to roll out untested, synthetic biology um, uh, vaccine. So, you know, one of the signals we, we, we've seen is this idea of immune escape. Um, another signal, and, and I, I think it is just the thin edge of the wedge, is also this idea of, of um, thrombocytopenia. Yeah. So we, we have specifically a, a, a reaction that we know is an autoimmune reaction. So this is not being well discussed in the media they're just saying, hey, you know, we know that thromboembolic events can occur with COVID itself. It looks like it can occur with the vaccine too. But this is what happens when you're vaccinated. I mean, you may have noticed that some of the blood banks 
are not accepting blood from vaccinated people. Now, one of the reasons for that is because the antibody count that you get after being vaccinated is screamingly high. It goes off the charts. Mm. So you can't put that kind of blood with these extremely high levels of antibody. And of course, um, we, we know by 100 days, nearly everyone has lost that, that, that antibody spike. And we still don't know exactly what happens in terms of long-term immunity, which is always going to be delivered around T cells. But now we start to see data that shows, as we were talking about the, the latest Israeli data, that shows that there is a competitive advantage for the more dangerous, more transmissible viruses, variants of viruses, to selectively start picking out the people who are vaccinated. I mean, that Amazing. should be yeah. a really important signal. That should be a really important signal to say, you know what, we should diversify our strategy. Yeah. You know, we've looked at, if we look at, say, if we're going to learn from history, look at something like mammography, very well disclosed in the you know, the radiological councils were, were massively trying to retaliate against that science for many years until it became absolutely unquestionable that people who were having regular mammograms were suffering overtreatment, um, too many biopsies leading, contributing to more harm than good. Yes. Um, we've seen a major issue with highly targeted medical interventions in the in the field of antibiotics. So doctors over-prescribing right. antibiotics, what did that lead to? Antimicrobial resistance, now a massive problem. Um, we've seen in agriculture major problems. Whenever yes. you go in and you use a single strategy, a single pesticide, um, Caniti Valley in Peru, cotton, I worked actually for um, a couple of years in, in um, another much more recent hotspot linked to pesticide resistance, helping farmers to and, and scientists uh, to, to learn how you could incorporate natural systems that reduce the, the insecticide resistance in the Cameron Highlands of Malaysia, which is the key sort of vegetable growing area for Hong Kong, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, et cetera, and Southeast Asia. Um, and the farmers were, were just massively overusing pesticides. What was the solution to diversify the approaches and use more natural control systems yeah. But we haven't done that with COVID. We've got yeah. all the signals that tell us. And what would we do? Well, hey, we would really be focusing on trying to get as many people to have the kind of immune response you see in children and young people who are largely resistant to COVID, regardless of the variant. These people have cross immunity. And you know, if we just have this highly specific immunity that's delivered from the vaccine, we've got a problem because right. if the mutation goes around it, you know, we're not going to be protected and we're going to be on that treadmill. So we've seen treadmills with antibiotics, treadmills with pesticides, yep. and we're on a treadmill now with vaccination and mass testing and people don't know about it. And I think that's the key message to get out. So let me ask you a question. You sit over there. I mean, I know you are all over the world, but, uh, you know, coming from the UK and, and you, we talked a little bit off air about um, America and maybe your perspective on that and the different states. And when I said I was in Orlando, you said, oh, you know, you've got an interesting governor there and and such. And and I, I guess I'm, I'm we didn't talk about this entirely. I don't want to put you on the spot, but 
you know, I, I, and I would really appreciate your perspective, you know, when other countries and nations around the world, you know, look at America and look at, you know, some of our stances historically on, on freedom and freedom of choice. And, you know, you said something earlier about the vaccine passports and that movable middle, if they're just going along with it. And again, would it be fair to say that you're, you're cheering for uh, nations to keep to put their foot down and say, you know, we're not going to do that. So we have, my fear is if we end up with everybody vaccinated, vaccinated and every you know, passports like we don't have um um what's the word we don't have a test you know a, 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 a you know the the group the the untested group anymore if everybody's vaccinated you don't have a uh can't think of the word right now right yeah. the, the, the control the control, control. group right yeah. yeah so if we don't have any control nations anymore it's like we had the big foot baseball game here you know a couple of weeks ago or whatever where you know forty thousand people in the stadium in texas and i'm like all right here we go right this is great we got to get people together so they're not afraid to live anymore so can you share a perspective on you have and maybe an encouragement because for our american listeners and just saying hold the line keep pressing in i mean if i'm reading between the lines on what you said in the uk you're somewhat losing that fight but i feel like we still have a chance in america if we can enough of us can 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 rise up what's your take on that what could you say to that okay so look i i think you're the, the extraordinary strength you have in, in the States is, is actually your constitution. And I think you should be deeply concerned that, that some of the basic principles that were set down by the founding fathers are now being contravened. And they obviously more likely to be contravened at a federal level. And it's um, going to be very interesting to see um, exactly how the Biden uh, administration handles this. And I think it's um, particularly interesting that they're deciding to um, be a little bit moot to suggest that they're not going to get behind vaccine passports. However, at the same time, um, and the WHO is making similar noises, but at the same time, that's likely politics. Behind the scenes, they are absolutely planning to do it. And the airlines are planning to do it. Yeah. And um, this is part of, of implementing something new. So I think that the loss of liberty that is going on um, around this one disease. Let's remember, this is one disease. Yeah. Bill Gates and others are talking about, and hey, not even a disease, an infection. Not even to, yeah. 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 I mean, we exactly. need to, yeah, right. Well, it, it, it there, there was a disease associated with it. It's not very common now, um, and and all we're doing is stringing it out. Yes. So you know, in lots of ways, I I think I'm probably not going too far to say that. In many respects, there is a kind of war. I, I've sometimes described it as, as being we're in, in the middle of, of, of now a third world war. I, I grew up um, as a kid, you know, in fear that there would be the third world war would be a nuclear war. Um, I think it's, you know, if you look at what wars are all about, they're all about power and control. So in many senses, we're getting to the same place. But what what's happening rather than a particular nation having authority it's a group of nations and individuals that are trying to assume totalitarian control that so that's that's what's going on and therefore because of that i'm going to use a, a another wartime concept that i think we need to start engaging with which is which is this idea of being a conscientious objector and I think if we can get more and more conscientious objectives, I'm involved with a group called the World Doctors Alliance that, that yeah. pulls together a lot of uh, medical doctors and scientists. And the calls that we're having, um, you know, with, with um, you know, dozens of different doctors from around the world, what is so deeply disturbing is that 
many of the doctors who are speaking out or decide that they are conscientious, conscientious objectors and deciding they're not going to engage in a vaccination campaign. They're not going to vaccinate their own patients because they don't want to do any harm because they've signed up to the Hippocratic Oath. They are being struck off their medical registers. And the, the bottom line is some of these are going, you know what? That's okay. We have to now, you know, we don't necessarily uh, need to die on our sword, but we need to stand up for what we believe. Because the minute you, you do, I have friends and colleagues who said, you know what? I, I'm so stressed out and I find it such an imposition on my freedom. I've just decided to be vaccinated. Mm. And I think once people start to do that, um, we have a problem because then it will be a tiny proportion of people who, who resist. But with any movement, you know, we've got to learn from the civil rights movements of, of our past. We are in a kind of war um, and we have to stand up for the principles we believe in. And from our perspective, that means we've got to track the science really, really closely. We're not interested in making anything up. Everything we've talked about today has actually come from official stats. It's out there. It's just that governments are choosing to be highly selective with the data that they talk to. So as we're, as we're kind of winding down, I'm so thankful that we've had you on today. And I would want our listeners, I mean, of course, our the name of our podcast is Designed to Heal, which is even in the midst of these heavy, heavy, heavy conversations that we're having and, you know, you know, using, you know, not, you know, terms like war, um, we don't throw those around, you know, lightly, um, but we need to be, if we don't see it like that, then we won't respond appropriately and we'll end up in a place we never wanted to end up. But I would want our listeners to be encouraged. I know with conversations I have had over you in the years, we're not sitting pawns, you know, that they have nothing that we can do. We can, we all make daily decisions regarding our health for ourselves and our families that have way more to do with our health than any shot or any pill or any drug ever will, right? What we put in our mouth, how we, where and when, where and how we get our food or grow our food to the, to the, you know, exercise to, you know, I'm a chiropractor in that world. It's, it's all, so I don't want a person to feel like, well, you know, I, I, I don't have anything I can do. My locus of control is outside of me. That's not necessarily true. Not only is there, not is there a lot you can do, it's actually the most important thing that you can do. When we looked at the core morbidities related to this and much of what you talked about and the populations that it's most at risk for, and even when you were talking about the younger populations and how well they do, the reason they do well is because they're thriving. They're, quote, healthy. There's a lot that goes into that word. So be encouraged and, and listen to our other podcasts. We've talked about these issues. However, Doc, that being said, you've probably triggered some thoughts for some people today, and they say, man, I like this. I liked this science. Uh, I like this honest conversation. I liked hearing this. How do they follow you? And is there a, a couple of sources? I mean, I know that we've had Mary Holland on before. I know you're, you help, uh, you're, it seems like you're helping with children's health defense. I see some of your work on there. How yeah. do they best follow you? Or do you yeah. have just a couple of sources that you do say for, the, for that movable Most. middle that say, hey, how do I engage? Because I want to stay up to date. I don't want to get that vaccine, I don't think, but what do I do? And what do you, what do you have for those listeners? Sure, sure. Look, we, we've got a huge amount of information. Our, our website is a ANH, which stands for Alliance for Natural Health, anhinternational.org. So anhinternational, one word, dot org, O-R-G. Um, and we have a huge amount of information there. You can go into the um, COVID campaign area. We, we basically, um, over a year ago, what we said we felt ought to happen is we need to adapt, not fight. And of course, 
the fight we now have on our hands is not against a virus. The the the, the real fight, you know, we 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 are we have already adapted largely to the virus, and the adaptation has been elongated, slowed down because of lockdowns and social distancing and all the associated measures. Um, but um, the, the thing that we now need to stand up against, as we as in any civil rights movement in the, of the past, is actually the response by the human beings that are controlling that. And and so a year on, um, it, it's pretty disappointing now to to see, for example, the Great Barrington Declaration, sure. which was the most common sense um, approach to that's what the science was talking to. It's what the science is still talking to. Yeah. And that's why I want to remind people when you, when you look back at the excess mortality data, just how short lived those early spikes were. That was the, 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 the real impact of this new, um, you know, pathogen entering a new host. Um, it's messy initially but it soon settles down. You get equilibrium. You cannot find equilibrium in any system, whether it's an agroecosystem, whether it's a rainforest, a coral reef, or a human population with a virus, unless you have complexity built into that. So any strategy that just relies on one approach is going to have a problem, particularly when you're looking at um, a virus that's given plenty of opportunities to mutate. So we have to, we're not going to get the answer from governments. We've seen that before in, in many other public health areas, you know, the, the, the whole idea of, you know, consuming a low fat diet was one of the, probably the biggest areas we've ever seen in terms of uh, um, public health messaging. We're in, in the middle of another major problem. We're not going to get the solution from our governments. So it does mean that, that those, who want to really look after themselves and their families have to largely do it themselves with their healthcare providers um, through self-care. Um, it is we know an awful lot about the things that we need to do to build resilience. Resilience is what it's all about, um, and um, you know the people who suffer most from this and other pathogens are people who don't have immune resilience and other forms of resilience. So we have to build that, and that does mean taking way more vitamin D than, than even Fauci is taking. Um, when you become in, infected, you know, just like our, if you look at the amount of uh, vitamin C that, that all other animals other than primates, guinea pigs, and a couple of fish um, produce in their own bodies, we need to be taking a gram a day of, of sorry, a gram an hour or every two hours of, of vitamin C. And if we get really sick because we suffer the effects of, of essentially viral and potentially also bacterial sepsis. You know, IV vitamin C is pretty crucial. So why were the main trials done on intravenous vitamin C done with half the dose that we know is necessary to give a good result? So um, we've got a huge amount of, uh, of data on anhinternational.org. Um, covidzone.org is a shortcut to get straight to our COVID pages. And you'll see a repository of articles we've been writing from the outset. I think we are one of relatively few commentators and researchers in this field that have never had to change our base story. Mm. Because we've been looking at, you know, you can look back at the original articles. Um, we didn't call the end of the pandemic when a lot of people called it because we were concerned 
about what might happen if you have so many lockdowns and delay the whole process. You just don't let that, um, you know, three spikes and it would have been gone. We would have been out in the open by now. But this way, particularly with vaccines and mass testing of people in community settings, we have a major problem and it could be a never-ending story. Doc, can I ask you one final question? I will let you go, but I, um, as I'm listening to you talk, so many of the conversations I have with either friends or family or patients, um, they almost feel like if they are that conscientious objector or they are that person that says, gosh, this doesn't make sense to me, uh, making, wearing a mask, it doesn't make sense to me to you know, not get together with my friends and family that I love and care about, or vaccine, you know, what I've seen there. Um, I think I feel like so many people feel like if they think like that, it makes them, and I'm using general terms here, that makes them like a, like a bad person or a careless person or a, a non-caring person. Matter of fact, I was just walking into a facility today and it said, um, you know, mask required to make everybody comfortable. Well, it doesn't make me comfortable when I see that sign, right? It doesn't work for everyone. And so hmm. when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about you, I, I just feel like maybe it's just because you have a great accent, <laughs> but could you, uh, <laughs> could you, i just teasing you, but could you, could you speak to that person that, that, that they're actually, the science is behind them. They're very thoughtful. I would almost, could almost change the term, not just a conscientious, but a, a critical thinking objector, right? A person that has questions that haven't been answered, that are reasonable questions. And that doesn't make you a bad person. I think that makes you a, quite a, quite a person, right? I mean, that's what we want, you know? Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's, it's about standing up. And, and the only way of doing that is by looking at each individual issues so if you look at masks you have to ask someone you know have you looked at the science on masks and have you then used common sense it's science plus common sense yeah. really so that the common sense of it is if you wear a mask for long periods of time it's going to get pretty damp you're going to create an environment that actually creates a preferential environment for many respiratory pathogens um, you're going to start getting a bad skin, mask, mask, call it what you like. Um, you are then going to be touching your mask and you're probably going to increase the chance of passing on um, the, the a virus, not just this virus, but any other virus. If you look at vaccines, I mean, you know, we talked about the Israeli study. Have you potentially pointed people to that study and said, do you know, if you've had two vaccines, you're eight times more likely to harbor the mutant virus that's more dangerous. So quit telling me as an unvaccinated person that has more broader-based um, natural immunity because I work hard at maintaining my own comprehensive immunity across my innate and adaptive immune system by eating a healthy diet, getting outside, getting lots of fresh air, not being stressed by this. You actually increase the risk that I'm going to get the mutant virus from yeah, you. Yeah. So you kind of are in a position where you can turn the tables. That kind of approach can cause people to wake up out of the stupor that they're in. Beautiful. We, um, we thank you. We appreciate you. Thanks for um, sharing all this. I feel like you're going to have to be back on the show as this continues to 
um, evolve, no pun intended. And, um, you know, just as we're having these kind of, we're, we're praying for your place. Uh, we know the, the people that you're with mostly and that your nation can have, continue to have a, a great awakening. It breaks my heart that places like Israel and Germany and others that have such a history of, of, um, even oppression and other things and civil rights issues, it breaks my heart to see them not waking up to the degree. And as an American, um, I just, man, it's, I'm just really struggling with the approach of what I see so many people that are good, that, that movable middle that I just continue to hope and pray that they will wake up and we'll see a model of healthcare. There's so much low hanging fruit and an area of opportunity for us to be a more resilient, thriving culture with a healthcare system that's built on an understanding of vitalism and resiliency and not on disease and, and diagnosis. And I pray that we get to see that in our lifetime. I don't know if we will or not, but um, thank you again, my friend, for your time today. And we'll talk soon. Ben, it's been great talking with you. Hey, can I just add one Absolutely. more thing? Just a, a, okay, one more thing. Um, we, we just had last weekend um, a board meeting with, with our, our US, um, NHUSA, the, the science director. One of the things that we've decided we can do here is to, because of the signal that we have on autoimmune disease, is to build campaigns specifically to try and ensure that people understand the importance of the right to refusal, the right to be exempted from vaccines, so that you don't lose rights and privileges if you already have either an autoimmune disease or immune disease risk as signed off by a doctor. Okay. So that's going to be a campaign that we're going to be unraveling um, in the coming weeks and months. So please be aware of that. We believe that those kind of campaigns, um, targeted legal actions, are also the kind of approaches that we all need to be involved in. So um, you don't just have to do this on your own. Okay. Um, many of us are working with, with other groups and we're building strategic alliances as we speak. But there is light at the other end of the tunnel. We just got to aim for it. We will do our best to support, my friend. Take care. God bless. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.